Well, turn with me, uh, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, and today we will be unpacking verse 10, Romans 12, 10, where Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. You may have heard the saying, uh, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. (laughs) That happens when we don't give preference to one another in honor because familiarity breeds contempt. There's a lot at stake here. We're going to learn today what many of you already know, and that is to dwell below with saints below, if you do it in the right way, can not just be another story, it can be another glory. Because the church family is not just another story. It can be, in a whole lot of ways, another glory, a taste of heaven when we'll be together forever, a weight of glory, because what we share together is the, really, treasure of a forever family bought by the blood with ties that go deeper than natural kin through the blood of Christ. And we're going to see that in a lot of ways, according to this verse, it's courtesy that can preserve that glory. An uncommon kind of common courtesy. In a day when common courtesy, unfortunately, has become most uncommon, right? We're going to talk about the courtesy of another day. Courtesy has always been a challenge, especially with those that we know, whether in the church family or in our own families. C.S. Lewis talked about it in an article that he wrote once called The Sermon and the Lunch. It's about the time he heard his pastor preach on the family, and then he compared what the pastor said about the family in the pulpit to what he had seen the pastor do at home that very day. It's the very picture of the very opposite of what we're going to be talking about today. And so, said the preacher, the home is the foundation of our national life. It is there when all is said and done that character is formed. It is there that we appear as we really are. It is there that we can fling aside the weary disguises of the outer world and be ourselves. That's what Lewis heard from the pulpit. I knew, wrote Lewis, that those very words were only too true, for I knew the preacher's own home pretty well. In fact, I'd been there for lunch that very day. I have learned that lunch at this parsonage nearly always follows the same pattern where he flings aside the disguises of the outer world and is himself, but it is not a good thing. And then Lewis sums it up this way as a long story of what happened at the pastor's home. Outside his own house, he behaves with ordinary courtesy. He would not have interrupted any other young man as he interrupted his son. He would not in any other company have talked confident nonsense about subjects of which he was totally ignorant. Or if he had, he would have accepted correction with good temper. But not when corrected by his own son. In fact, he values home as the place where he can be himself in the sense of trampling on many of the restraints which civilized humanity has found indispensable for tolerable social intercourse. 
And this, I think, Lewis concludes, is very common. Yes, God knows this is very common. These days more than ever, from the family to the country, we are trampling, as Lewis said, on the restraints which civilized humanity has found indispensable for tolerable social intercourse. And it's not a light matter. Our incivility has released, you know, animal spirits into our society. Our discourtesy, our ranting and raving from the internet to the halls of Congress to the Oval Office. But it doesn't come out of nowhere. No, it's been building up for quite some time now. 20 years ago, Senator Mark Udall said this in the New York Times. He wrote, he wrote, so much of the storied Senate civility has disappeared. This was 20 years ago. He said, from what I've heard about the Senate in the past, when comedy reigned, we've come a long way. He concluded his article this way. Many senators worry about the future of an institution, of the institution of the Senate, and its ability to function in a highly polarized atmosphere driven by relentless minute-by-minute news cycles and the drive for partisan wins. He thought we had it bad back then. God help us. It's like the great historian Will Durant said, continue to express your dissent, but remember to remain civilized, for we will sorely miss civilization if it is sacrificed in the turbulence of our incivility. There's more than meets the eye to Romans 12.10, as there is to all these verses. More than we know, civility is at the heart of a civilized society. There's more at stake than we might imagine when Paul tells the church at Rome that it's got to start with the church and then it goes from there. But it's got to start here or there's no hope for the nation when he tells them to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give, and here it is, preference to one another in honor. Because far more than any other institution, the church is the answer to what ails the country so long as we don't just reflect what's going on in the country. For well over a year now, in Romans 1 to 11, we've seen, really, we've been seeing that the pillar and the support of the truth is uh, the church. Uh, That the pillar and support of the church is also the truth. And if that's true, then the foundation of the church is sound theology. And we spent a long time on that. But if that's the root, then according to Romans 12 to 16, the fruits of sound theology are the qualities of true Christianity without which we will come across as Pharisees with the truth. As loose cannons, as bulls, you know, in china closets. Because without love, truth can become a a lie from the pit of hell, according to James. 
unless the truth is couched in qualities like humility, as we saw in the first eight verses of this chapter, and then sincerity rather than hypocrisy in our love, as we saw last week and then this week, with the decency, the civility, the comity in Udall's words, the uncommon courtesy that, pres- that, that prizes and preserves the church family, our natural families, and ultimately society. Without that, the truth can be a dangerous thing. And so he puts a huge comma after chapter 11, and chapters 12 to 16 are all about love in one way or another. Now, before we look at what it means when it comes to how, how that we prize and preserve one another and preserve our love, which is the second line of Romans 12.10, we need to follow Paul's cue and focus on why we need to do this, which is the first line. Why we must handle, why, why should we handle the love we share with such care? Well, it's Romans 12, 10a, where Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Why are we to treat one another with such care? Because it's brotherly love that we share. By one another, Paul means the treasure of your brother or sister in the forever family that was bought by the blood of Christ. Brotherly Love, with whom you share the same heavenly Father, a family that's united by the blood of the Savior, far deeper that blood tie goes than natural kin. As we sang, dear is the apple of thine eye and graven on thy hand. We are God's people. He wills us be a family, a forever Family, which is why the Amplified Version translates it as members of one family be devoted to one another. It's a precious thing. It's a treasure, this brotherly love that we share. It's like Lucian said of the early church. See how they, this was an unbeliever looking in from the outside. He said, see how they care for one another. They spare nothing in meeting each other's needs. Why do they honor and care for one another in that way? He said their first legislature, that's Jesus, has put it in their minds that they are brethren, closer than next of kin. Why handle with care? What we have here are precious, priceless treasures, family members. So what? The Latins call the sine qua non, the without which we have nothing as a church. What we're talking about today is nothing less than what is in many ways the supreme quality uh, of true Christianity. By this, Christ said, we'll know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Or John said that, 1 John 3, 14. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, John 13, 35, if you have love for one another. Why is it that we're to treasure it and handle with care? Because it's so, we're going to see, precious and fragile. And so often we don't appreciate what we have until we lose it, like we did during COVID. <laughs> Didn't absence make the heart grow fonder just a little bit or maybe a huge amount? I know it did for me. And now that we're back together, isn't it precious? It's what we live on, Christ through his body. It's like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, who was martyred by the Nazis. 
Uh, he was separated from the brethren, not by COVID, but in prison. And he put it this way while he was there. He, uh, absence made the heart grow fonder for him too. He saw what it really was all along. He said the prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile sees the company of a fellow Christian brother as a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. Whoa. In loneliness and persecution, they receive and meet each other as one meets the Lord. In reverence, in humility, in, and here it is, in honor and in joy. But if there is so much blessing and joy even in this single encounter of a brother with a brother, how inexhaustible are the riches that are opened up for those who by God's grace are privileged to live in daily fellowship with other Christians. We are brethren in Christ, so let us receive one another, he says, in reverence, in humility, and then the word for today, in honor and in joy. Oh, it's a precious thing we share. So let's not take it for granted again. And one way you keep that from happening is by, as Paul says, giving preference to one another in honor. Because it's a priceless treasure we share. As Julie and I are starting to really realize now that we're going to be leaving you. So wonderful is brotherly love that it can result in an uncommon courtesy when we really experience it as we receive one another in reverence and humility and honor and in joy. It's like C.S. Lewis said, love requires courtesy to survive. Indeed, it is love that makes us courteous when it's really there. And that's why Paul goes on in the second line to focus on just this, on honoring one another, on courtesy toward one another as he talks about love. Because you can destroy love if your experience is anything like mine at home or even at church. You can destroy love in such small ways. That's what Paul's getting at here. It's like Edna St. Vincent Millay wrote in a poem uh, called The Sparrow is Dead. The sparrow is the light of love in our eyes that so quickly dims. <laughs> she was talking about the death of some love in her life, and she said, "'Tis not love's going that hurt my days, but that it went in such little ways." Ever experienced that? I have. And you can nurture it on the other side of that, with such little courtesies that say everything. It's the same thing that Bonhoeffer and many others have noticed. Paul focuses on one of the most important ways that we're to show our devotion to one another in brotherly love, when in the very next line he says, give preference to one another in honor. So what does it mean? Well, to begin with, some people do this some of the time under certain circumstances, like when they fall in love. We all do it. Paul's saying, though, we must all do it all the time, regularly and persistently. And, how do we, and we know that because the literal translation of the verse is not just give preference, but giving preference, he says, in honor. It's the participial form of the verb, which means to continually do it. Not just intermittently, not just when absence makes the heart grow fonder, not just when you're you know, in prison or sick or in exile. The teaching here is that we need to show it continually until uncommon courtesy becomes common. 
And it's not just uncommon courtesy in the sense of uncommon to our culture. As courtesy is uncommon in our culture. Because Paul was writing in a culture where it was far more common than in our day. And the words he used here make it clear that he was saying that they should show uncommon courtesy above the level even of their culture. He emphasizes this by almost repeating himself here. Giving preference means honor, and honor, of course, means honor. So he's saying, it's like he's saying, in honoring, which you already do, give preference to one another, that means honor in the original. In honoring, really honor one another. That's the literal translation. Maybe the English Standard Version has it best, which says, outdo one another in showing honor. Whoa. Which is why I've titled this message, Love's Preservative, Uncommon Courtesy. It's like Lord Chesterfield long ago said in a letter to his son after he just got married. He said, if ever a man and his wife lay aside all good breeding, their intimacy will soon degenerate into coarse familiarity, which will infallibly produce contempt or disgust. Love's Preservative, Uncommon Courtesy. Because that's the alternative. What we're talking about is a virtue, unfortunately, from another day. So what does it mean? Well, the NASB version translates it, give preference to one another in honor. In the Greek, it reads, te teme alelos proegumenoi, which uh, literally, uh, which literally uh, translates, give preference to one another in the kind of honor that you would show to the Lord. Uh, it literally translates, with honor going before each other. In our culture, it's what we do when we go before, you know, to open a door, maybe. That kind of gets at it. Though these days, sometimes you got to be careful who you do that with. <laughs> because we are not a culture that values honor like some Asian and African cultures still do. We, we are not a culture that appreciates what it means uh, and how important it is to go before one another in showing honor. It's kind of like the, uh, the video that we saw in America's Funniest Home Videos long ago. It was uh, where they honor people far more than we do in Japan. And two people come up toward, with each, uh, toward each other in the with two shopping carts in a grocery store. And one insists that the other go, and then the other insists that the other go, and they go back and forth, back and forth, and no one goes. <laughs> We're a different culture than that. <laughs> So what does it mean to do this? It's so uncommon in our day that we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at exactly what it looks like starting with the scripture. This is a difficult phrase to translate because pro-egumenoi uh, was such a rich word in the Near Eastern culture where they knew what honor meant. It's an action that had many manifestations and it's a word that has many applications. It's deep and rich. But believe it or not, God does it with us. So let's start with him. What does it look like according to scripture? Well, when it comes to going before in honor, God goes far beyond the culture, far beyond the call of the creator with fallen creatures like you and me. We don't deserve it. But he gives it. He dishes it out. He goes far beyond anything you would ever expect of the holy God when he tells us things like Isaiah 43.4 to rebellious Israel, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Huh. 
You're saying God honors me? It's what Christ did with the disciples when he <laughs> washed their feet. It's what he did with the 5,000 when he <laughs> made their lunch. It's what he did after the resurrection on the shore of the Sea of Galilee when, when he cooked their breakfast. A little said a lot. And when they got back to the shore after working all night, just as day was breaking, it says they saw the charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. John 21, 9. This is at the very end of John to make a point. Talk about going before them in honor. The resurrected Lord made their breakfast. Talk about being thoughtful. That's what real men do. If you let the son of man define masculinity. Though it's not as much that way in our culture. It's like Sidney Harris said. He was a syndicated columnist. Some of you may remember him long ago with the New York Times. He wrote something that used to apply to street thugs alone, but now it applies even to elected representatives. As I was edging out of the parking lot the other day, some Clyde in his Bonneville cut sharply ahead of me, flashed a sour smile of triumph in my direction, and scooted away. He thought he was displaying strength and aggressiveness. I thought he was displaying weakness and bad manners. What the prevailing ethos in a modern America life does not seem to understand is that true strength always reveals itself in gentleness and courtesy. This was the whole idea, medieval idea of knighthood and chivalry. A knight was chivalrous because he felt strong enough to afford it. We tend to confuse rudeness with power and aggressiveness with virility. Many, if not most, of the bad-mannered drivers on the road are slack-jawed youths who privately feel weak and insecure in their personal relations with the world. Tooling a ferocious car gives them a vicarious sense of power that they do not possess in person. And then he concludes with this, genuine strength of character is always accompanied by the, a feeling of security that allows one to practice civility and courtesy. But in our perverse culture, civility and courtesy are often regarded as signs of weakness or some lack of manliness. He wrote that 25 years ago. God help us today. When it's not just the Clydes and their Pontiac Bonnevilles that can be crude and curlish and discourteous. No, it's senators and even presidents. Unlike the one who washed their feet, who made their lunch, who cooked their breakfast. And that's because it's a special kind of love that you show to those that you really treasure. It's how we stay in love as couples. It's how we can cultivate love in our families through the many thoughtful courtesies by which we give preference to one another in honor, by which we say, just like the heavenly father whose love is in me, just like Christ whose love is in me, you, he's showing himself through me. I can't do it on my own. You are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. Love requires courtesy. Just like Lewis said, indeed it is love that makes us courteous. Just look what happens when you fall in love. Remember how it used to be? 
when you were in love? How love and honor always went together? When you fall in love, you honor each other with flowers and, you know, pulling back chairs and opening doors and special birthday gifts and cards and random acts of kindness, of service. Just like our fourth value says, serving together, ministering with the attitude of servants in all we do, starting at home. It's not only what we do when we fall in love. It's a good part of how you can stay in love. It's a good part, uh, and it's so important that this was a, a traditional part of the betrothal vows in the traditional wedding ceremony. It's what I uh, asked my son Cameron a couple years ago on his wedding day. Because though they're millennials, they wanted these old-fashioned values as a part of their vows. And so I asked him, will you love her, comfort her, honor, and keep her Beautiful. And then I turned to Anna and I asked, will you love him, comfort him, honor, and keep him? It's all through scripture. There's a whole litany of verses about this, about how this should characterize the home. How we should bestow a kind of dignity on all humanity, made in the image of God, no matter how fallen. But especially and supremely with members of our families, so what Paul said in Ephesians 5.33, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Another translation is honor. More than anything, men are looking for the honor that we call respect, especially from their wives. Men, men are wired to thrive on it. Someone said, treat a man as he is and he will stay as he is. But treat him as if he were what he ought to be and he will become that bigger and better man. And a wife can do that for a husband like no one else. And she can also do the opposite. So do you cut him down or do you honor him by building him up? Whatever you do, it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But of course it goes both ways, which is why Peter says, and you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way and show her honor as a fellow heir to the grace of life. And you do that... By, by listening to her, by respecting her feelings, because they are deep and profound feminine intuitions that we men need to pay attention to. Tenderly drawing them out. For a woman, this is one of the greatest of all courtesies when you just lend her your ear. Beautiful. What we're talking about today is, is fundamental to the survival of the family. Not just for husbands and wives, but for sons and daughters. Because, of course, this is for children, too. It's, it's for all of us and the way that we treat our parents. It's the first command, as we know, with a promise. Honor your what? Father and mother, that it may be well with you. And how do you do that? Well, here's how not to do it. My father put this together for a talk that he gave to teens once. It's called How to Dishonor Your Parents. One, argue with them about as many things as possible, especially little things that have no real significance. <laughs> little discourtesies. Argument is a way of letting them know that their thinking is stupid and wrong. Two, avoid showing them love except in any but the required ways, and even then do it with a bad attitude. Avoid doing anything special or out of the way to let them know, I appreciate you. Avoid all courtesy. And especially, never make statements or remarks to let them know that you admire, respect, or are grateful for the things that they have done for you in the past. 
Three, when you're home, avoid serving them except when they ask you and then do it reluctantly and never take the initiative to do things that you know they want you to do anyway and especially don't look for things to do that they don't ask you to do. <laughs> this is a more subtle way to dishonor them, just ignoring the things that we uh, might do to lift the load for them and let them know you're important to me. And then finally, four, don't take them into your confidence. Don't let them know your, what you're thinking or your plans until the last minute. And then only let them know what you're going to do, but don't give them any real chance to have a say in the matter. This, of course, hurts deeply when they realize they are being cut out of your life and your decisions. This is particularly effective when they are non-Christians because this is the way of saying that because you do not know, know the Lord personally, your opinions are no longer worth anything. And then he concludes, the opposite of this is to seek their counsel. Let them know your thinking days and weeks before any decision is necessary. Then even if one has to go against their desire, they have had a chance to share their thinking. And it gives them time to bring, uh, to bring them up to date week by week on how your thinking is progressing. So that the final decision does not come as a shock. Just show them, he concludes, some common courtesy honor your father and your mother. And not just when you're still at home, especially as they grow older. They desperately need your consideration, your, the consideration that in our culture of youth, all too often we reserve for those that are younger. And what does that look like? I think the best picture of honoring our father and mother when they're older is in Genesis 9. It's beautiful, where it says that Noah, the great patriarch Noah, Genesis 9, 21, drank wine, he became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. He doesn't deserve honor right now. And his son Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. They wouldn't even look at it. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. That's a parable of how we treat our parents as they grow older. What does it mean to us? Well, Matthew Henry said this in his great commentary on this very passage. What does it look like? Here's what it looks like to honor our father and mother. I love this. He said, we must throw a cloak of reverence over the faults of parents. A cloak of reverence over the faults of parents. Honor one another. We do this by saying things like please and thank you by washing dishes after she slaves over a meal, or as the case may be, he slaves over a meal, by asking your kids what they think, by answering the same question 10 times in 10 minutes when a loved one has Alzheimer's. What does it look like? It applies to everyone from everything from being gentle to being punctual. Someone said, punctuality is showing high esteem. High esteem for what? It's showing high esteem for other people and their time. It shows honor to one another. It has to do with not always demanding your way because that would be unseemly for those that you so respect. 
It has to do with not talking behind their back because you, you seek to preserve each man and woman's dignity and preserve each man and woman's pride like we sing and they'll know we're Christians by our love. It has to do with not jumping to conclusions about someone because you'd like to think better of them. It has to do with politely you know, enduring music that you may not enjoy in a worship service without looking down on those who do enjoy it because though you might not like their taste, you respect them as people and you love them. It has to do with politely listening without interrupting, even though you know what they're going to say, especially with the elderly. Courtesy may seem to you like a triviality, but that's what it's all about. It has to do with things that are small, but not trivial. We're hearkening back to another day today. It has to do with what Stuart Alsop did. Here's what Newsweek magazine said about this great old school journalist. The week after he died, back in another day in 1974. Alsop was respectful of his elders, gracious with his colleagues, considerate of children, loyal to friends, and at all times manifested a pre-liberation attitude of courtesy toward women. Even when his body was corroded with pain, Stu would struggle to his feet when a woman entered the room. And these days, more than ever, this old-fashioned value has got to start with the church. When brotherly love, in brotherly love, we give preference to one another in honor. So wonderful is this kind of love that it results in uncommon courtesy when we fall into it. And most of us have experienced that. But also, so fragile is this kind of love that we must be uncommonly courteous so we don't fall out of it. Because love's preservative is uncommon courtesy. And so Paul's instinct when talking about the priority of brotherly love here in Romans 12.10 when exhorting them to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, his instinct was to immediately appeal to them to present, protect and to preserve that love by giving preference to one another in honor in Romans 12b. He knew that familiarity so easily breeds contempt, especially in the family. And so he said, we must honor one another because it's how we say you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. It's how we treasure those we love. And it's how we safeguard the treasure of our love. From the family, to the church, to the country, and especially, as Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, with our enemies. Supremely with them. especially in a day when we have trampled on the restraints which civilized humanity has found indispensable for tolerable social intercourse. As Lewis said, it almost goes without saying, but it unfortunately doesn't. If we value our civilization at all costs, we must stay civilized. If you want to read more about what this means when it comes to changing our country, I'd recommend a book 
called Christians in the Age of Outrage. Just published a couple years ago. Christians in the Age of Outrage by Ed Stitzer. It's, uh, it's subtitled, How to Bring Our Best When the World is at Its Worst. I love the last part, part three of this book. He called it Outrageous Alternatives to Outrage. And Paul would love what he outlines in chapter nine of part three, which he titles Winsome Love. Where did that go? Now, as we close today, some of you may be thinking this. Well, maybe a lot of things, but maybe at least this. You mean, I can't say what I want to even at home? I can't let my guard down even there? That's what C.S. Lewis asked after being told the story, after he told the story about his pastor that I read to you at the beginning. He said, but you might ask, if a man can't be comfortable and unguarded at home, if he can't take his ease and be himself in his own house, where can he be? The answer, Lewis wrote, is an alarming one. <laughs> there is nowhere this side of heaven where one can safely lay down the reins on the horse's neck. It will never be lawful simply to be ourselves until ourselves have become fully and gloriously sons of God. This does not mean, of course, that there's no difference between home life and general society. It does mean, however, that home life must have its own rules of courtesy. A code of conduct more intimate, more subtle, more sensitive, and therefore much more difficult than in any other sphere. God help us. And help us, he will, if we just call on him, as we've been seeing. And call on him we must, given that there is nowhere we can safely lay down the reins. Given that we need a code of conduct, as Lewis said, that is more intimate at home, more subtle, more sensitive, and therefore much more difficult at home than in any other sphere. Given the frailty of our humanity, we will fail on our own unless we really know the love of Christ like our mission calls us to, and make live contact with him, with the one who's living in us to do it through us, in whom honor and love always go together, who washed their feet, who made their lunch, who cooked their breakfast, who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, just like our core value of serving together calls us to. The good news of the gospel is that we have in us the one who knows what it means to honor his bride, that is, you and me, to love her, comfort, honor, and keep her through all eternity. The good news is that in him, we can do it too. We can each do our part to maintain our civilization. Whenever in our weakness, we simply turn to him in our repentance. When in our emptiness, we simply turn to him for his fullness. Because as we've seen again and again, when you do this again and again, when over and again at your point of need, you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved all through life. Maybe not suddenly, but incrementally and inexorably. 
Not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Bring him into your life and into all your relationships by calling on him. And it will happen through the saving life of Christ who is in you to uh, do it through you. For the sake of your family and for the sake of this church and for the sake of the country. Amen. As the worship leaders come forward, let's sing now of this precious treasure that we handle with care, of that precious tie that binds us together in Christian love.